everyone um tuning into this this is perhaps something special uh it's certainly something different um i am joined by isaac ariel reed who wrote the book that we're talking about this week so about i guess a month ago or something or a couple months ago i was uh, contacted by the university of chicago press to see if i would do um an episode with isaac on his new book uh which i was a obviously a good opportunity for me. So I, I took that up. Uh, and now we're here. And before jumping into that, uh, you can find me on Instagram if you want to see pictures of my cats at theory underscore and underscore philosophy. Um, you can, you'll be able to find this in podcast form because I'm going to uh, convert it to an MP3 um, and it'll be available on there. If you're listening to this in podcast form, you can find the video of it on YouTube. Uh, if you want to see our mugshots, um what else you can find me on patreon if you want to contribute if not like share subscribe that all helps a lot um but obviously take care of yourself first or uh if you have the means you know and you feel like contributing to me uh consider deferring that and giving to an organization that might need it more be it black lives matter or anything uh relating to marginalized groups today because they certainly need it more than i do uh and i guess that's about it uh and i present as you can see or here uh isaac now i have i wrote a nice little i'm calling my own work nice isn't that isn't that something i wrote a little introduction for us here that i think is going to i guess capture the essence of the book in in uh, quite broadly and then isaac and i'll move into it in a lot more detail um but I would like to say this was written, Isaac, in 2020, over 2019, released in 2020. Um, so sure. it's very new. And it's a very good book. And I, I recommend uh, people check it out because it it does something new. Or it gives us something new in the discussion of power, uh, which my little introduction here might capture. So Power is a term we all recognize. We can point to those who wield it and those who do not, often without knowing how to actually define it. So Michel Foucault perhaps presents us with the most rigorous exposition into power to date, tracing its broad transformation from sovereign power to disciplinary and carceral power. And if you want more on that, I've done a bunch of videos on Foucault, if you want to check those out. But with Foucault's work, we are provided the theoretical tools to assess the movements of power today, looking upon not single sites of power, but of entire networks of power. Whether the site of power is that of the clinic, the prison, the school, or the office building, we are assuming that power means not only the capacity to command, but also, and perhaps more to the point, the capacity to survey, mandate, and control, to borrow one of Deleuze's terms. So while this is useful, Foucault leaves us with a somewhat narrow possibility of power, one that does not account for the multivariate forms it can assume, not only among those we know to be powerful, teachers, police, government officials, parents, etc., but also among those it is believed to govern. So it is from here that Isaac Ariel reads Power and Modernity, Agency Relations and the Creative Destruction of the King's Two Bodies begins, conducting a holistic dissection of the various mechanisms that underwrite power and the many actors that navigate it. 
So Dr. Reed is professor of sociology at the University of Virginia, who in addition to this book is the author of many articles and chapters, as well as the book Interpretation and Social Knowledge on the Use of Theory in the Human Sciences. One paper you might want to check out is Deep Culture in Action, Resignification, Synecdoche, and Metanarrative in the Moral Panic of the Salem Witch Trials, published in the journal Theory and Society. Uh, so as for the book, Power and Modernity, it begins by setting the stage of modernity and the various actors that inhabit it, rectors, actors, and others, all of whom are bound by the mutual desire to conduct projects of their own volition and for their own ends, all the while vying for recognition by a superior yet ambiguous counterpart. Power is not contained in a single location as it once was in the time of kings or the sovereign in Foucault's words. And so rectors, actors, and others find themselves embedded in crisscrossing networks of domination and delegation, which pull them in different directions. They are continually negotiating their present positions and what those positions mean for their futures. Of the three, rectors can be understood as the residual sovereign, the person who contains the power to author and command their subordinate actors for their own end. The rector is rector because other actors become her agents. Actors then complete the compartmentalized tasks of the rector, each task representing its own project that the corresponding actor could be argued to be the rector author of. Rector, actor, actor, rector, the categories are by no means solid. Their relationship is like that of a chiasma, a link between two chromatids belonging to homolo homologous, homologous chromosomes. In this case, the homologous chromosome might be understood as their mutual stake in modernity, the luminiferous ether that sets the condition for their perpetual metamorphoses. What remains consistent, like their mutual stake in modernity, is their capacity to recognize each other as subjects with their own goals. By contrast, the other is the person that is not only excluded from the rector-actor's projects, they are excluded from the very possibility of recognition itself, Entrance into the rector-actor paradigm depends on a number of factors, including those material, relational, discursive, and, and this is the focus of power and modernity, the performative. Employing J.L. Austin's theories of language, Reed pays specific attention to illocution, which is the performative moment in a speech act, and he generalizes this to a performative dimension of all power relations. In the infinitesimal moments, in and between words, and in the traversing of many different contexts by actors striving to be rectors, that we can trace the movements of the, to use an anachronistic metaphor, prison guards of modernity. Which speech, which speech acts are permitted, which were responsible for condemning Oscar Wilde to harsh labor or excluding various groups from full citizenship in modern democratic republics, and which became part of extraordinary and perhaps liberatory reinventions of the human? Reed does not reach for this for his magnifying glass to investigate subtle speech rules, but instead meditates on their existence to highlight the potency of the performative in constituting or foreclosing subjectivity. So ultimately, what he finds is that the efforts of so many critics of modernity have been misguided in their obstinate acceptance, acceptance of the king's death, the ultimate rector who sets the conditions of acceptability as a fact. What we have seen instead was the death of the king's physical body, not the death of the king's second body, the body politic. By considering the maintenance of the king's second body and the enchantment that accompanies it, we can be better equipped to evaluate the seemingly indiscernible movements of modernity. And that's what 
I wrote to kind of capture this. And I should have said the full title of the book, which is Power and Modernity, I guess, colon, Agency Relations and the Creative Destruction of the King's Two Bodies. So that's where we get our you know, discussion about the king. Um, so, yeah, that's... Thank you so much for that. And I'm really, really happy to be here. That's great. That was a great summary. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So what, you know, what spurred you on to write this? Well, I think, um, you know, the book has sort of two um, big intellectual motivations. One was a a kind of synthetic one, and and you covered it well already in your summary. Um, But let me put it this way in terms of the kind of history of thought and philosophy, since this is a theory and philosophy podcast. And this is what it looks like, by the way. All right. Yes. Yes. I ended up with a red cover, which I was very pleased with. It's, it's good. Very right, right. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think, I think what I saw first was a kind of opportunity for synthesis in, or synthetic thinking. Um, divisions are always somewhat arbitrary, but one way to put it would be this. There's a long tradition of thinking about power and especially modern power that I would call uh, focused on logistics and legitimation. You know, and the big story in those ways of thinking about power are sort of things like how do the rulers of a state get the agents of a state to do what they want? How do they take over more and more areas of life? How do they successfully dominate their population? You know, the big figure in European thought here would be Max Weber. And, you know, you can be critical of power um, from this perspective. Um, but in a certain sense, your stories, your analytical, your analysis is always going to be kind of focused on how people manage to shore up the state or other organizations. So it tends to be focused on rector actor, and in particular, sort of on things like when does the um, lower bureaucracy of the East German state no longer believe in the project of socialism? Right. So that's one sort of, and there's a huge tradition of thinking that way. Then there's another tradition which is much more grounded in the perspective of the other, um, you know, where, 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 and there the idea is to look at power, but really a power from the from the position of um, the radically excluded, the, the 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 people who are subject to violence, who can't even kind of get into the game of rector and actor. Um, maybe an iconic thinker in this regard would be someone like Franz Fanon. Um, although in, in, in my book, I sort of ground my discussion of the other in a, 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 a very well-known sociology book called Slavery and Social Death by Orlando Patterson, which is also kind of attempts at, to think about alterity. But we could think of other thinkers coming from that perspective as well. Um, maybe Judith Butler is another example. And there, there's much less emphasis on logistics. And so one of the goals of the book was to kind of synthesize and think with those two traditions at the same time, because I found them both valuable. Um, a second motivation was just uh, a youth. It was historical. Um, although, of course, as all historical investigations are grounded in the present, um, I felt that we were witnessing, as I was working on this book, the end of a certain long arc of um, political modernity, um, and I wanted to look back into the archives and into the secondary literature to better understand the beginnings of that arc. That's how I kind of think that theory and history and philosophy work together. 
I'm not just referring to the ongoing crises in the American Republic, but also maybe something broader about um, how uh, uh, being has articulated itself in the last 200, 300 years in the Atlantic world. Um, and my sense was that I, I wanted to go and kind of reconsider the origins of what we have come to call, perhaps all too quickly, political modernity. Um, and that's what sent me into the you know, archives vis-a-vis -vis Virginia and um, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, et cetera. Um, and that's what got me, you know, really motivated to look carefully at the early American Republic. So those are my motivations, I guess. That's a, that's a long speech, but uh, uh, um, that's sort of where I'm coming. That's sort of where I'm coming from. I, I mean, that sounds like a. Not only was there a good recognition of what needed to be said, but also a good execution of that. Um, but just as a quick point of clarification, when you mean the Atlantic world or, or the Atlantic, what exactly are you referring to? So, um, I mean, well, so the, the grounding for this is a great book written in the 90s by Paul Gilroy called The Black Atlantic. Yeah. So if you think of the Atlantic world as, as, as um, you know, the world that was held together by um, – early or came into being together via early modern racial capitalism. Um, and more broadly, right, I would say a certain version of the Atlantic. So it includes West Africa, the Western parts of Europe, North America and South America. That's the Atlantic world. Um, when you say the Atlantic world, you're also particularly interested maybe in specific nodes in the Atlantic world, the Caribbean, um, uh, as a as a keynote in the in the slave trade and in sugar production, for example, um, and for me, the Atlantic world is also the site of the three um, massive um, political revolutions at the end of the 18th century: um, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and the Haitian Revolution. So if you think of those as a kind of triangle of, of, of revolutions in the Atlantic world is the, the world of people, migrations of capital and persons and goods in which the politics of the 18th century took place. Um, one can have a lot of discussions about how to think about that world and empire and nation state, et cetera, but that's the sort of baseline we're talking about um, the Atlantic world and for framing those three revolutions, which in my view can be studied as um, one sort of origin point of what we call political modernity. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, and I think that, you know, and I'm going to generalize here, when we think of um, especially something like the slave trade, I think that there are many um, refusals to acknowledge the kinds of resistances that occurred as a result, perhaps not in the in the fine moments that it was first being conducted, but that came out of it. And how did these, especially when dealing with like the Haitian Revolution as an example, and how does that, the existence of these kinds of uh, revolutions or attempts at, at revolution, how does that speak to your dynamic between rectors, actors, others? Right. So, um, you know, my... My dynamic is designed to be a kind of analytical language, this weird language of rector, actor, other, where rector is the one who sends actor to do something, that's an act of power, excludes other, 
that's also an act of power. There are, there are, let's say there are rectors and actors and others in early modernity, in pre-modernity, in late modernity. There are always rectors, actors, and others. It's a language to describe some of these changes. And what I would, what I would say is that if we look at the early modern period, so that's sort of like, I don't know, 1550 or 1519 up until these 18th century revolutions, you know, what we see is um, actually a consolidation of this language of the king being a very useful way to hold together really long chains of rectors and actors. Um, so the language of the king is what holds together a royal governor of a colony in Virginia with his agents that he sends out uh, in a war party uh, uh, to, to fight the Okanichi tribe or something like that, right? So, so that the language of the king organizes all of these agency relations. Um, and that is a language, of course, that includes also alterity or otherness um, via the slave trade, of course, but via other means as well. Um, there's lots of religious profanation flying around, <laughs> flying around um, the early modern world. Um, you know, uh, the, 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 the British colonists are, are um, anti-Indian, but also anti-French because the French are Catholic. I mean, you know, we know there are all these, there are all kinds of othering going on. Um, but one, one can think then um, of the creative destruction of the world of the king as being what these, these uh, revolutions did. And what happens is, what then are you going to put in place of the language of the king to hold together these long chains of power that you have in modern capitalism and in modern empires? So what I mean by hold together long chains of power is just how important the king reference to the king was for conducting high politics, even when the king is a long, long way away. Right. So what that that's what I really found in the archives in Virginia is everybody's talking about the king's interest. I mean, it takes two months for the king to get there, you know, in, in, in and it won't be him. It'll be an agent of agent of the agent of the king who arrives, you know, in 1670 to put down a rebellion in 1676. So there's a kind of but the language of the king is a very important way to hold things together. So why does the justice of the peace in Virginia think that he should make the right decision and uphold the law? Well, because he's acting for the king in some kind of fantastical imagination. Um, the three great Atlantic revolutions destroy this way of holding together long chains of power. And then the question is, with what do you replace it? Um, and I think modernity has given a lot of different and often conflicting answers to that question, how you bind agents to the people who send them to do things. Um, and that's the, that's the sort of historical, philosophical hypothesis of the book, that we want to think of modernity as that thing that happens when you stop using the language of the king or the emperor um, to hold together power relations at the edge, far away from the center, and you have to come up with something else to do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and to just think about the king before, you know, diving into what happens with the, with the king's ostensible death, um, 
the king is someone that both uh, tries to exist outside of the world in that they see themselves as being transcendent in many cases, yet is someone who commands the world. You know, they are the rector and they command various actors and kind of um, accrue various agents that they can make work for them in the world to have certain material uh, effects. And what does that mean? Or is there like kind of tension there between the king's desire to move away from the world and the fact that they stake a lot of their recognition in the world upon, you know, their existing within it as a commander of it? Yes, yes. I I see what you're saying. It's a great question. And if I understand you correctly, you're pointing a little bit to the to the kind of Hegelian um, roots in this book. Um, Rector and actor are partially taken from or a reinterpretation of or an attempt at um, what Hegel talked about as lordship and knightship or lord and bondsman or sometimes translated as master and slave. Um, I, of course, want three moving pieces instead of two. And I think that many Hegel scholars have noticed that um, there might be three moving pieces instead of two, but one one thing you're pointing to is that Hegel points out that the that the Lord turns away from the world because he has bondsmen to do work for him and bring him his meals or whatever, um, and then at the same time he needs the recognition of the bondsmen. So I mean, you know, here I'm also following Orlando Patterson, who pointed out quite distinctly that Hegel didn't pay enough attention to the way in which lords get recognition from other lords. Um, so, so uh, uh, you know, there there is a way in which the Hegelian dyad should be expanded also in the sense that the politics of recognition are very complicated. I'm sure there are Hegelian scholars, including Charles Taylor, who has worked on that. Um, the other thing that I wanted to talk about, though, was also the way in which um, Rector seals actor to himself by their mutual opposition to others by a scapegoating or common enemy, et cetera. That a lot of what um, accounts for the relationship, um, you know, between rector and actor, I mean, in Hegel's narrative, what accounts for the relationship between Lord and Bondsman is sort of cessation of hostilities between the two of them, um, which ends up with one more powerful than the other. I don't think that's exactly right in the sense that the relationship I posit between rector and actor is a relationship sealed together partially by the coding of certain parts of the world and certain people in certain parts of the world as other. And that very coding allows a kind of sealing of this hierarchical relationship between rector and actor. And I see little acts of that throughout the sort of micro world of modernity and in just infinitesimal moments. But I also see sort of grand cultural schemes that are sort of designed to do this ceiling of hierarchy. Um, You know, uh, before there was a concept of Europe or European civilization, there was a concept of Christendom, which was also a way to seal together hierarchy and, and, uh, uh, um, you know, make sure that these chains of power continue to function. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And when we have this dynamic in which there's a rector and an actor that are bound together by their mutual disdain or hatred for an other, um, we 
enter kind of, uh, I guess, sticky territory because the other is at one time both the person that is incapable of being a rector. They do not have their own projects to command or to uh, realize, and therefore they don't have people that they can command. But when they are scapegoated, they are ascribed a certain authorship potential. Like that person over there is trying to disenfranchise me via their you know, own, um, I guess their own ends or, or whatever, their own, their own projects. So is it that the other can assume two different forms? The other can be the person that is like in the case of perhaps slavery, who is denied all autonomy, denied all capacity for uh, authorship. We could have that on one hand. And on the other hand, we can have the other that is, you know, excluded just because their projects, their own, you know, um, desires do not happen to match those of the rector actor in question or the one that we're, you know, focusing on. Right, right. It's a great question. As I was working on this book, you know, I, I really struggled with this sort of question of authorship because what I first wanted to say is that in a, in a typical rector actor power relation, which is a relation of delegation, which everyone has had an experience of, if you've ever tried to get somebody to do something for you, you've been in a rector actor relationship. Yeah. So what I the first thing I realized is all rector actor relationships have a struggle over authorship. Whose project is this? Who deserves the most pay for creating this thing? Um, who deserves the most social recognition? So then you have this interesting question of how the you know, so if rector and actor are in a struggle and it's a struggle over authorship, um, what are the ways in which? the other is excluded from authorship or is interpreted in some particular way vis-a-vis -vis authorship. And over the course of working on this, I, I, I sort of came up with four, um, although there are really two that are prominent in the text, right? So the classic ones that are very recognizable from all of human history are the other as enemy and the other um, as slave, right? So, and in, in the long arc of human history, there's a relationship between these two because, of course, captured enemies in war sometimes became enslaved persons, right? For example, in ancient Rome. Um, so if other is an enemy, they do have authorship, but it's very dangerous to you and you're worried about the, you know, the enemy's staff and their military. Um, you know, uh, the natal alienation and social death of slavery, um, of course, all human beings actually are actors who do have projects, but the natal alienation of slavery denies public recognition of any project at all or authorship. But then I realized that there's also this thing where scapegoating is something bad is happening in the community at large, and we want to say that that bad thing is solely authored by the other we being rector and actor inside the community, that's also a kind of authorship. It's just usually an unwanted one. Um, you know, uh, you, you know uh, um, I mean, classically in, in, in Western history, oh, it, it, there's, a, there's, there's a plague in the town. It must be because some Jews moved in here and they are making us sick, right? I mean, that's a kind of attribution of authorship, which is also a form of othering. So I realized that othering is not always denial of authorship. Sometimes it can be attribution of authorship. Um, we, I think, see that in conspiracy theories that are based around um, attributing a, you know, 
worldwide uh, Jewish conspiracy to dominate the world or something. That's an attribution of authorship as a form of othering. Um, we also see it in the fact that the language whereby people or groups are othered often oscillates between these things in a wild way. I mean, modern um, forms of racism, race and racism, which I view as a modern creation, and then modern forms of anti-Semitism often have this incredible volatility in, on the one hand, they say, well, you know, this set of people are totally incapable, they're less good, they're less than human, they can't author anything. And at the same time, you know, we don't want we don't want the Jews around. And then at the same time, they say, oh, but actually there's a vast world conspiracy um, being authored by this set of people to take us down. So there's a kind of weird kind of, um, you know, way in which alterity seems to um, work culturally by a, both attributing authorship and also not sort of simultaneously. And sometimes that's sort of like, you don't like the individual person or you do like the individual person, but you don't like the group or something like that. And then I'll just say, I mean, there is a kind of last um, default category, which is the category of invisibility. Um, you can make people invisible in a society, um, even if they're not explicitly coded as enemies, slaves, or scapegoats. You can just ignore their capacity for authorship. You can continue not to, to, to recognize it. Um, and I think that's probably important. I mean, that's um, in a certain sense what Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man is about. Yeah, and so if the othering in that case is, a, is if we're talking about the othering that is produced by uh, locating different kind of authorial, authorial yeah. authorship ends to uh, different people, that seems to, at least on the part of the rector and actor, it seems to demonstrate some degree of fragility that they see as, you know, perhaps going to be exploited uh, by this other. So this rector-actor relationship in doing that, and this is really an interesting part of conspiracy theories, in that when a conspiracy theory is espoused, they are attributing a great deal of power to, you know, these unseen people. And in a lot of cases, you know, they happen to already be marginalized folks. Take, you know, any case in the United States, right? Like, oh, Mexican immigrants are trying to, you know, take over, you know, there's this caravan coming and they're planning to take over the United States. These people don't have power. Right. If there are any immigrants, they are, the, you know, by definition, people who don't have power or, I guess, refugees. Um, so, in that description of these people in this way, it ascribes them power they don't have, but it also m marks the director-actor relationship as rather weak and fragile. Almost, and, and therefore, it is by virtue of that that they're able to, in my opinion, I guess, intensify their relationship because it's one that needs to be strengthened because they frame it as being weak. It needs to be strengthened from this exterior, you know, penetrating other. And it's always, you know, the nation is always uh, kind of expressed as a, as a woman, right? You know, it's always in need of defense from that uh, that other that is coming at them. And I'm I have to give credit where credit's due. I'm taking a lot of this from the work of Sarah Ahmed in her book, um, The Cultural Politics of Emotion, because I'm not going to plagiarize. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. No, absolutely. No, Ahmed is important. I, I, I would just add a kind of historicization to this a little bit, in the sense that I think that. 
I mean, you can think of the intensification of othering via conspiracy theories for sure, partially as a kind of, you know, reaction to a kind of weakening. Um, But it also might emerge as a reaction to a kind of unfocusing or uh, overcomplexification um, of the nodes and uh, uh, overcomplexification of the world in which people are positioned. So, so one thing to think about as power relationships become obscure as a source of conspiracy theory um, is whether that you know there is there is a there is a kind of confusion or unfocusing on the relationship between um, the powers that be and that which would authorize them as good or moral or, or legitimate. That when there is a kind of unfocusing of those things, um, you might think about that as a, as a, as as something that, that even if, so I guess what I'm saying is you could have a surplus of power in modernity that isn't really weakened in the sense that kind of like Foucault described, it's sort of networks, networks everywhere, power, power everywhere, no drop to drink. I mean, you know, um, you could have that. And why would you have conspiracy theories in a hyper-networked power world of expertise, um, tremendous management of day-to-day life, all the things Foucault talks about, you know, schools look more like prisons, look more like hospitals. I mean, all that, if that stuff is true, how is it that you still have conspiracy theories and maybe even an overgrowth of them. But okay, so to just continue, you're saying how can we make sense of the existence of conspiracy theories if Foucault's thesis is right that there's like this carceral, all networked kind of superpower that exists everywhere? Right. How do we make sense of the existence of conspiracy theories? Right. And so the, the my, you know my, my idea is that is that in fact, I mean this this requires some some dispute with Foucault perhaps, but if if there's a kind of extension of power relations all over the modern world, which I think there is. And if there's an intensification, conspiracy theories are useful because to people, because in that intensification of power relations in the modern world, there is also a defocusing of the relation, an unfocusing of the relationship between power and authority in the sense of good authorship or authorship of moral and right action. So, what one might imagine is on the one hand in the modern, we see an increasing linking together of power relations all over the world in various ways. Um, on the other hand, as that happens, we also see the overgrowth of different claims to authority, expert authority, expert authority in a million different worlds, um, different people who have different things to say about how you should lead a healthy and moral life. Um, and meanwhile, political systems seem to become, they run faster and faster and more and more overgrown. It's unclear what the relationship of the political system to the media system is, et cetera. So what I would call that is a kind of unfocusing of this relationship. And in a, in a situation where it's very unclear what the relationship is between multiple power systems and authorship, it becomes extremely tempting to posit a kind of one author to rule them all explanation of the world. Um, So that's how it might be that conspiracy theories have this incredible modern life, even though maybe it's not the case that power relations are necessarily weak. That is, you might need the other 
in a conspiracy theory, uh, not because the relationship between rector and actor is really weak or really uncertain in its, rea- in its reality, but rather because you can't seem to bring the world into focus. And if, if you can bring the world into focus, by which I mean, you know, neatly divide those acts of power that are, you know, good and necessary from those that are bad and should be sanctioned and fought against, you know, if you can bring the world into focus in that way, um, that's a very appealing way to make meaning out of, um, you know, an increasingly uh, overgrown and confusing set of, you know, situation. Um, and and I, I think that's a way to describe the kind of modern condition. I, I think there are aspects of Foucault's theory that really get us there. And then there are other aspects where, where, where we kind of have to have to invent some new stuff. Yeah, and to speak just for a moment to like the kind of scholarship around conspiracy theories, uh, the I guess the big figure that speaks to that idea of like you know uh, using conspiracy theories to make sense of a you know increasingly globalized um, you know decentralized very confusing world, uh, P- Peter Knight is one such person. Another person that uses Foucault quite extensively in terms of conspiracy theories is someone by the name of Jack uh, Z. Bradich, who makes the argument that conspiracy theories don't um, necessarily have a definition. Rather, they are a category that are that is employed in order to discredit some knowledges as opposed to, to others. So it's in that way for him that we can make use of Foucault to understand uh, conspiracy theories, because it's not for him that conspiracy theories are prima facie uh, a, a negative thing or like represent, you know, just a paranoid style or a crippled epistemology. They instead are just something that a, a term that is thrown at knowledge that doesn't fit within the kind of dominant networked frames or whatever. Uh-huh. I um, see, I see. So it would make sense then that that would kind of happen in a world where 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 people are uh, where where there are, where, is the, where there's a multiplication of authorities. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Yeah, yeah that that sounds. I mean, that, that you know, that, that sounds promising to me as a way to account for things. I I, I guess I would say it also um, strikes me as promising just because I, I I guess to bring this back to the kind of um, human experience, so to speak. I mean, I don't. Um, I mean, I think one of the core transformations um, or contradictions, let's say, of modernity is that, you know, a kind of intensification of the human expectation that one is the author of one's own life. I think that's probably always been true about all human beings at all times and places. But there is this way in which the modern transformation intensifies the expectation that one... um, is the author of one's own actions and will be judged for those, your own actions alone. I think that that, you know, covers some aspects of modern individualism, so to speak, but also beyond individualism or individualistic culture or something like that. I mean, I, I think that the modern world, I mean, all the movements for liberation in the modern world have tend to have some dimension of, um, the desire to be the author of one's own life or one's own actions to them, whether, you know, even, you know, whether or not they're demanding a vote or, 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 or separation and, 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 and self-containment as a new nation or something like that. I mean, one sees over and over again, this demand for authorship. And I guess the last thing I would say is that 
as I'm sure you and your viewers and listeners have seen, you know, I'm plenty pessimistic about modernity, but I think it's the responsibility of philosophy and theory also to recognize those things that are indelible aspects of ourselves as thinkers. And I think it would be very hard to give up uh, the idea that I can and should be the author of my own actions. That would be a very hard thing for me to give up. I think most uh, um, critical thinkers in the modern world, they're, I, you know, I, I, I think they still want their names on their books. I think that there's, you know, there's a very, there's, a, there's something very elemental about this demand. I think it's probably, like I said, been always true about human life, but there is something about the modern world that seems to intensify that demand. Um, and, and that leaves you in a real dilemma when the modern world is constituted by all of these systems of delegation, um, all, you know, all over, the, all over the place. Because in a certain sense, the modern world demands that we all are, we all desperately want to be the authors of our own life, self-determination, et cetera. On the other hand, we're subject to forces outside of our localities in an increasingly intense way. Um, and, and there are vast systems of delegation and bureaucratic capture that determine our life outcomes uh, in, that seem to be in radical contradiction with the desire that we are the authors of our own actions. That, you know, that we're not just going to accept our fate, that we want to be able to reinvent ourselves, that we want to be able to choose this or choose that. And if we can't do that, we're not free, et cetera. So that contradiction seems very central and very hard to get around. And it does strike me that conspiracy theories are one way in which you can deal with that contradiction because you can basically say, well, the things that are not working out for me are the responsibility of one really bad author. Um, and I, I, that, that, that strikes me as, as somehow bound up with the whole you know, question of politi political modernity. Yeah, definitely. And, and how much of this is a product, I guess, of this death of the king's second body or the death of the king's uh, you know, first physical body, but the, the body politic still, I guess, permeates the, the um, I guess, political imagination, especially in America, if we, you know, because that's the focus of the book. It's not, you know, restricted to that, uh, but just for the focus of the book, how does the king's death you know, become, um, it marks less a an actual death as it does more almost like an internalization of the kings, like representing the body politic as, as a mode of like control. Um, so what is the king's two bodies? It's the idea that the king has two bodies. Uh, one is his natural body, um, which is subject to error and ill health and eventually dies. And he has a second body, which is sacred, transcendental, contains the body of the political community in it and never dies, continues on into perpetuity. Like there's just all going on and on and on. And, and Kentorovers is interested in this because he's interested in the way in which this has the political effect of you know, being, making it possible to imagine that there's something like a modern state, um, you know, that will continue on to collect taxes when all of its current rulers are long since dead. Um, so that's the world of the king's two bodies. And I try to show in the book the way in which this language of the king and the second body of the king helps tie together these uh, 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 power relationships. 
So what happens when you destroy? Well, I guess I would say that there's really a kind of big fork. Two things happen, which almost seem like the opposite of each other, but I think they both happen. So one is, you know, the destruction of the king as the way to organize uh, legitimate power affords, when you destroy it, it kind of opens up a negative space in which other ways to do power can rush in. So um, one of those that has been very focused on by the scholar Eric Santner is um, that you can, that kind of biopower can rush in. Um, I would say that the um, structures of race and racism which are kind of rumbling into existence in the Atlantic world, um, starting in 1519, of course, antecedents before that, you know, uh, when you destroy the language of the king, that can rush in because um, you can build a state and, 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 and folks who are building a state can say, who can we trust to be an agent of the state? It has to be the people who match racially, the people who are ruling the state. So that's one, one thing that can happen. Um, more generally, you have this very broad and volatile and complicated modern formation where you I have the strong idea that the people, whoever that is, replace the sovereign. You have popular sovereignty. Um, and then, of course, the idea there is that the rulers, uh, elected rulers, are actually the agents and it's the people who are the rector. Um, that has a complicated history. Um, and, but the other, so that's all on one side. You know, you get rid of the king and all this other stuff can rush in um, for how you design power, et cetera, and how, how, power, how power comes into the world. The other side is that it never really totally goes away. That the king's two bodies, you know, and the idea that the king's body contains the body politic keeps reappearing in the modern world, but often under different guises and in strange manifestations. Um, so in the U.S., um, there's a long history of obsessing about presidential families, bodies, uh, um, uh, and of course, like the sort of mythology of the White House itself is somehow engaged in some way of saying that, uh, well, on the one hand, the president is, you know, is, is, is just a man like any other man. And, and on the other hand, the president has to sort of embody the people. And so you get some kingly tropes back in. I mean, we have paintings that are the apotheosis of George Washington. Um, what I would say about that and what's so interesting about the recurrence of the king's two bodies in, in modern American culture is that the king, kingliness becomes a part of politics in the specific sense that you can use kingliness to make a leader appear sacred or to make a leader appear profane, right? And so it becomes a part of political contestation, the language of the king's two bodies, rather than it being the kind of meaningful background against which people interpreted kings. And, you know, the meaningful background version of the king's two bodies in the early modern and the medieval world is there's a thing which is kind of the sacred power of the king. And so to do my projects, I have to kind of convince some other people that my projects are aligned with the projects of the king. If you look in the in modern American politics, if you just look at the cartoons, you know, there's a famous conservative cartoon that shows 
FDR wearing a crown, canceling the Constitution. Um, people probably know the cartoon of uh, Nixon looking especially uh, dour and evil, wearing a crown. Um, you know, they came out during, I think, during the impeachment or, or maybe a little bit earlier. Um, there's a, you know, so there's obviously now we have many, many cartoons about uh, Trump and he's wearing a crown and he's acting like a baby, et cetera, et cetera. So one thing that happens with the King's Two Bodies is that it comes in back, but it comes back as a kind of contested part of the political system and a contested part of political culture, not as a kind of background against which to do contestation. Instead, oh, you can use the king to profane anybody in American culture because you can you can you can draw a cartoon with them wearing a crown and you will immediately be speaking to that person's opponents by saying, oh look at that uh, autocrat over there. So it's very it's very interesting to me that that that, that the King's two bodies sort of keeps recurring um, but in these modulated forms which are very, very different than how it originally came in as an actual legal doctrine uh, in you know in Tudor England, for example. And how did that play out in revolutionary America? Because there are a few different actors, a few different uh, characters that come up here, like uh, Herman Husband and um, the other fellow, uh, who who used to some extent the king's name for their for their own end, or to at least or to challenge it. Um, so how did it play out there? Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting question. Um, and I think the way I would put it is, you know, if we think of the first British Empire as these long rector actor chains um, of power, and then of course there are various kinds of others, etc. You know, you can think of the politics of the American Revolution as um, a set of people with some power and some chains of their own. Um, you know, spending some of the 18th century trying to get more leverage within the sovereign system of the, of the British Empire. And, and, and then at some point deciding that, in fact, they're not really getting to be the actors that they want to be in the rector-actor chain. They decide that they've been othered and therefore, you know, Engage in a, uh, in a in a in a in a violent destruction of the system. So, so one way to think about this is: How did the king's two bodies live in the pre-revolutionary period in America? Well, it actually lived in a lot of ways. I mean, um, it lived in things like notions of the patriarchal family somehow being based on on the king is also the father of the nation or something. But one of the big ways it lived is in colonial governors. Who carry, you know, so a, a, a British governor appointed to govern the Dominion of New England or to govern Massachusetts, you know, sort of carried the, the sovereignty of the king across the ocean. And he was an actor, an agent of the king. And at some point, the agents are thrown out or attacked or killed, et cetera. And a different kind of sovereignty is set up. That's a way to think about the American Revolution. Um, what I would what I would say about that is is this this historian Eric Nelson has written this very interesting book um, called the Royalist Revolution, um, which I don't agree with entirely, but which points out this very interesting thing, which is that very very late in the lead up to 1776, 
many of the American elites who would become leaders in the revolution were taken up for a little bit by this kind of last-ditch theory. I don't know if it's quite a conspiracy theory, but it's interesting, this idea that they really, really, the American colonists had been, you know, under the boot heel of a corrupt parliament. And if they just appealed directly to the king, that maybe, you know, he would reset the, the laws and the, he would take away the Stamp Act and the oppressive taxes and all this kind of, right? And so there's this, this sort of last gasp moment where the men who are now revered in the American public as the quote-unquote founding fathers are all sort of appealing to the symbolic father. And they're, oh, well, you know, you know uh, uh, parliament is completely corrupt and, you know, the powers and the interests are dominating us from parliament. But, but if we appeal to the king, you know, he will see that, that our case is correct. And we can think of this in terms of the king's two bodies as a kind of last, last gasp of the fantasy of the one good king. Right, which is then followed in its failure by the revolution and a new fantasy, which we all live with every day in the language of politics and which is partially institutionalized when you have elections. And that new fantasy, that new fantasy formation is that the people are sovereign and the people are never wrong. And so in the era of the king, people say the king has decreed it. And, and that's like almost ritualistic incantation. But we have a ritualistic incantation in modern politics. It's very similar, which is after an election, everyone says the people have spoken. Now, we all know that this is kind of not entirely true. What does that really mean? There always are people who voted for the other candidate. There's the electoral college. There's all, I mean, what does it really mean to say that people have spoken? But that's a kind of shows the life of the king's two bodies because people ritually, you know, cite the people in the way that people used to ritually cite the king. You know, the king has decreed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The king has given us this colony. The king, you know, that's all legitimation of power. And now we say the people have spoken in almost exactly the same way. So there again, we can see, you know, in the origins of American political modernity, this weird transfer where on the one hand, you destroy a way of building power. And on the other hand, that way keeps coming back. It doesn't go away entirely. And some of its ritual and cultural elements are, seem un, inescapable. There seems to always need to be this citing of the thing that's always right. And, you know, in American democracy, the people are always right. You know, and even when people discuss scientific uh, polls, then the next word out of a commentator's mouth on cable TV is always, well, wouldn't you say that the American people are feeling blah? I mean, that's a fantastical entity, but it seems to be a central aspect of modern politics, citing that fantastical entity. I mean, we all, we all know that the American people doesn't exist, except they don't exist, except for they do exist in this particular weird way of being constitutive of modern politics. Yeah, and depending on where you're getting your news from, you have one side saying the other side aren't like the real Americans and, and vice versa. And when you have such a split, like in the case of the last election, I don't know the numbers offhand, but like the country was like half and half. And there, this tension is very, very strong. Um, but I wanted to ask, uh, uh, you know, follow up with a comment too. Um, in Foucault's work, Discipline and Punish, he traces the transition from sovereign to disciplinary power. And he says that in this transition, attacks leveled against a state or nation uh, 
previous to the transition, I should say, it was the king's burden to take that on. The king felt the pain of that ostensibly. Whereas in the transition to disciplinary power, suddenly the people, that is for Foucault, the social body, began to experience the pain. So then you get, you know, uh, people hating criminals in ways that they didn't before because they feel like because the criminal did something against the law that they were directly affected because they are a part of that law, part a part of that social body and body politic. How does that align with your own approach here? Are, are there differences that you think you should you should parse out uh, or maybe there aren't but in any case I put it out there yeah yeah so that, I mean, that's a great question it's a really fine line because partially I am arguing in line with Foucault that this transition away from the sovereign as the you know sort of divine representative of the body politic you know is constitutive of the modern. So I agree that the people replace the sovereign, um, you know, and, and, and uh, particularly around the way in which the criminal is coded and condemned. And actually Foucault in the opening pages of Discipline and Punish um, cites Kantorovich and says, wouldn't it be great not only to have um, a history of the king's two bodies, but a history of the two bodies of the condemned man? I'm not getting the quote exactly right, but, but he basically says we should have, couldn't we have a, a kind of counter history to the king's two bodies, which is the bodies of the condemned man. So in one sense, I'm in deep agreement. And of course, one can see, of course, all the politics of population as sort of growing out of this. So, you know, the, no, the notion that certain people have to be locked up so as to defend society or the population against disease or criminality, et cetera, comes out of exactly the way that you summarized Foucault's argument. Um, however, I do have a kind of, let's say, disagreement inside the agreement uh, with Foucault. Um, because I just, I guess I think that one of the implications of Foucault's Discipline and Punish, and certainly this was very drawn out by um, Foucault's followers who wrote about disciplinary power and the state, et cetera, um, when they were writing in the 90s and the 2000s. I mean, one of the implications of that is that there's a kind of decline in uh, sacred and profane politics, that there, the disciplinary power refers to the triumph of expertise and the, the scientific society. So, you know, where we used, you know, and, and that's a kind of implication of, of Foucault's middle period work that I disagree with. I don't think that um, we really, as Foucault suggests, move to a society of sequestration, sort of over-rationalization or the overuse of expertise and, um, you know, a kind of quietized world where everyone sees their psychiatrist and, and, and then gets out of bed in the morning and, and, and goes to their job. And I, I mean, Foucault is a little bit too much of a, uh, of a Weberian theorist of the Iron Cage for me, because I see incredible volatility in sacred politics. That is to say, in profaning certain people as bad leaders and other ones as good leaders, in the mobilization of religious energies in the modern world. Um, 
maybe one way to put my disagreement with Foucault would be the following way. Foucault is an excellent student of the triumph of expertise and modernity. He's very good at showing how, you know, in a certain court case, suddenly the psychiatric expert shows up and says something about criminality and everybody in the court is like, oh, okay. Um, but I feel that Foucault sometimes takes his modern experts at their word a little bit too much. Like the world really is just imminent now and there isn't any, there aren't any references to the transcendental anymore and scientific expertise really does dominate the distribution of power and authority in society. And I don't feel that that is the case. I see instead, you know, a vast dispersion of enchantments and, and the incredible volatility of um, what I would call, you know, relig religious political energy all throughout the modern. And it may be true that some scientific experts, including academics, really believe that the world is sort of reduced to what they can see. But that doesn't get me very far in trying to explain the political movements that I want to understand, in which you really have to understand that the world of the sacred and the profane and the attribution of meaningful significance, that doesn't go away in the modern. We're not, not, you know, we're not nearly as disenchanted as, as, as would be suggested um, by Foucault or by someone who thinks that, the, that it's good that the world is full of expertise. I mean, Foucault is a dystopian thinker, of course, but there, you know, there are other people who would say, yes, you know, thank goodness that we now have psychiatrists and people can feel better, et cetera, et cetera. And I would say, well, you know, I mean, the relation, you know, the, the idea that the psychiatrist has replaced the, the priest is a little bit flawed because, because there is a sense in which, um, you know, uh, uh, the role of the sacred in politics is not disappeared. It's just modulated. Um, in how people engage the world, you know, uh, I was going to ask you, I mean, one of the recent articles on QAnon compared it to the early days of a religious movement, pointed out that it was an article in the Atlantic, you know, pointed out that QAnon has more followers um, than uh, Mormonism did when it started, right? And so, you know, it sort of, we're sort of posed a sort of weird question. We don't like to think that way because, of course, you know, we're, we're good moderns and we respect people for their religious beliefs and we think that QAnon is crazy. But, but, but from a kind of analytic point of view in which the sacred is unleashed in the modern rather than tamped down, then it would, that sort of makes sense, right? Of course, we have, of course we have QAnon. Of course we have many different religious sects, et cetera, because what happens in the modern is not that the sacred is eliminated. It's rather broken into a million pieces and unleashed around the world. That would be kind of like, the, that, that, that would be the kind of more extreme difference from Foucault that comes out of this book. And, and that's certainly um, an idea that I agree with. Uh, and we get that because we spoke briefly about Colasso. Colasso is definitely uh, on your side there. But yeah. additionally, nice. um, Baudillard's critique of Foucault very much follows the same path where Baudillard says, well, Okay, Foucault, if you ascribe such, um, I guess, uh, powerful potential to these various institutions, what you are doing is reinscribing their capacity as sites of power. And what, what you're, you're essentially shooting yourself in the foot by saying that, you know, power is everywhere. But let's look at these specific examples. You know, it's really these experts that have power. It's really the prison guards. It's really the teachers, you know, the managers, bureaucrats, um, 
Whereas Baudrillard's like, if it's true that power is everywhere, then say it. And I think that that's where your uh, idea, at least the tensions between rectors, actors, others, takes Foucault that step further in that now we have, um, I guess, a way by which we can look at the the actual, I guess, um, chiasmatic or, or kind of reversible uh, movements of power from between those people that we see or assume to not have power and those people that we perceive to have power so that it is in in Baudrillard's words, there's a, what he calls seduction going on. Like there is no single site of power. It, it's always moving. Um, and that is where, you know, for him, uh, a kind of radical project lies. As for QAnon, I think that that's a perfect example of, um, you know, a counter thesis to Foucault's in that it demonstrates that these sites of power that he describes, either they aren't like, nearly as uh, effective as he says they are or they're just like not they haven't fully expanded everywhere yet because so many people just submit to total uh you know i will just say it it's kind of silly like i'm to be uh, a little bit of a um, judgmental person here it's kind of out there and you get this a lot. Like if Foucault was right, then people would be believing climate change, but people don't half the country doesn't believe it. Like how effective, like if, if it was a matter of scientists having this kind of like, you know, disciplinary power, you know, liberal governmentality, all these types of things, how do we make sense of that? Um, which is where, again, I think that your book addresses that problem. Um, right. But yes, I mean, I think yeah. you know, I say, I, there's, there's something very interesting there because I think that in one of the kind of indirect implications of Foucault's theory is that the modern world is quite fused together, that prisons look like hospitals, look like uh, 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 look like schools, etc. And these techniques, as they travel, or the, what he calls the tactics, as they travel across zones of strategies sort of fuse the world together in a, in a kind of, in a kind of, um, you know, in a, in a sort of huge, you know, sort of, and, and, and the institutions are the key ones that do it. But, but I would say that what, 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 what things like QAnon reveal is not only that the Foucaultian sort of cage isn't, isn't complete, but also that the world continues to be wildly differentiated um, into different zones and different um spaces of belief and justification and self-concept, et cetera. So, so one way to say this would be is I, I think there is um, modern sort of differentiation of different spheres in society. They don't all look the same. People play different roles in different spaces. That's a very modern phenomenon. So in that sense, I, I, I agree with, with, with uh, I guess, uh, Max Weber and Emil Durkheim. There is differentiation. But what I, where I disagree with Max Weber is that I see differentiation in endless enchantment as part of that differentiation. And it's very interesting to think about what, you know, Foucault's hypothesis, you know, tells us to look for vis-a-vis, you know, the kind of way in which QAnon reveals a kind of consistent, um, there's always another space being invented in the modern, and that space has its own enchantments and its own narratives, et cetera. Uh, I wanted to ask about whiskey. Because whiskey and the whiskey rebellion 
figures prominently in the, in this book and how whiskey was a site of contestation almost between those people speaking on behalf of the king and those people trying to usurp at least the image of the king or the king's body. Um, so if you can say more about that. So the Whiskey Rebellion is this event in um, early American Republic when um, uh, uh, um, some farmers on the western part of the Republic, um, which would have been western Pennsylvania and kind of eking into the Ohio Territory at the time, um, in 1794, uh, you know, stopped paying their taxes and start violently harassing tax collectors on the new internal excise on whiskey, which was a very kind of um, early moment of, uh, well, let's put the Whiskey Rebellion this way. Uh, the Whiskey Rebellion was a moment in, 19, in 1794 when Occupy Wall Street and Don't Tread on Me Tea Party were like fused together in the farmers of, of Western Pennsylvania. They were mad because the tax on whiskey was on veterans of the um, Revolutionary War and it was going to be used to pay off uh, um, at full value the war. Um, in New York, who were Alexander Hamilton's friends. <laughs> so they was the first uh, uh, attempt to tax the people to do a government bailout of the wealthy elite. Um, at the same time, the farmers engaged in the Whiskey Rebellion, um, you know, had as one of their main grievances that the American state wasn't strong and violent enough vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the Miami tribe in Ohio um, and other Native American tribes uh, 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 around where they lived in Pittsburgh. So it's a sort of classic early moment of American politics, which has a lot of resonances today. Um, but from the perspective, you know, what's interesting, particularly about whiskey, is um, it was a kind of what I would call an expressive material. It afforded a lot of things and was also a site of intense um, performative contestation. So whiskey is really an interesting thing. Obviously, it has certain effects on the body. Um, and in the early, um, in the 18th century, you could not really run an army without a supply of whiskey. Um, men who were drafted into the army and promised payment would desert if they didn't have whiskey as pain relief um, from long marches um, at the, the end of fighting, of course, for those who had been injured but not killed. Um, so, you know, I've looked at the logs for uh, um, uh, American armies in this era, and they're just very simple. They say, you know, this many coats, this many guns, um, this many barrels of whiskey required. So um, whiskey is a, an essential sort of, um, I guess, Latourian actant in um, the very process of building an army. Um, and at the same time, whiskey was economically interesting to, um, for the Western farmers. So the Western United States at this period is like what we would now describe as Kentucky and Western Pennsylvania, <laughs> um, is what I'm referring to. And for them, they didn't have access to the Mississippi River to transport their grain to sell it to market. So they would distill it into whiskey and take it on horses across the mountains to the East Coast to, to, sell, it, to sell the whiskey there. They also traded in whiskey because they didn't have enough currency um, in the West, in Western US. So it's this immensely fraught material object, which is then the subject of all of this politics. So um, when the Whiskey Rebellion gets going, 
Alexander Hamilton and the new sort of rectors of the American state who want to say that they, they are on the side of the people because the people is the new sacred. They say, oh, well, these people in Western Pennsylvania, they're just drunkards and they're tyrants because they're, they're little regional interests. They're trying to overrule, you know, the Congress, which is the body of the people. Um, of course, the language in Western Pennsylvania was a little bit different. Um, their language was the Eastern snake of financial tyranny is destroying the true American democratic project of making the people the sovereign. And that while we used to have corrupt kings, you know, now we have the people as sovereign, but unfortunately the sovereign people have been destroyed by the financial elites who are taking away everything and taxing our whiskey. So we can see here already some of the volatility of the sacred people in American politics. Um, and I dare say this is something that has not gone away um, in, in American politics. And in fact, is quite revealing of, of, of the present moment. You know, the claimed act on behalf of the sacred people, you know, it, it, is, it, it is one of the most contested and most intense sites of power conflict in American politics. And we see this again and again, and the claims about whiskey are all claims about rectorship. So I argue in the book, actually, that including in a kind of humorous play that was written about the Whiskey Rebellion um, and was published in the newspapers of the time, which kind of makes fun of everybody involved, we can see in the humor of that play about the Whiskey Rebellion, which in fact involves claiming that the Whiskey Rebels were their only sovereign is actually liquor, and then, but also claiming that the U.S. government is silly and weak. And so my claim is that we can see in the Whiskey Rebellion both the mythological politics of the people are always right, but also the tremendous anxiety in this, in this early moment of modern politics of how you are going to do this, hold a state and a society together without the king. And so you can see, like, why was this funny, this funny play that was published um, in American newspapers uh, in 1794? It was funny because it touched upon and kind of activated an anxiety, which is that how do you hold a society together and how, in fact, do you justify hierarchy in a society in which the king has been destroyed? And in that anxiety, we can see that anxiety um, in the humor around the Whiskey Rebellion. Because the, the, the ultimate joke of the play is when, when, when there's no sovereign, everybody's lost. And therefore, everybody is kind of at loose ends and easily made fun of because no one knows where the, where the serious sacred is. So that, that's like the jokey flip side of the very serious politics of the Whiskey Rebellion, which is people marching an armed march of people on Pittsburgh to defy the American government. It's a kind, it's a kind of uh, a rebellion um, based in tax resistance. I hope that was clear. It was like a lot on the Whiskey Rebellion, but the Whiskey, whiskey Rebellion um, plays an important role in the book for that reason. I thought it was a really interesting moment to study this question of um, what happens to the king in, in, you know, in the world of the modern. Yeah, no, that was great. That was great. Because um, I thought I really liked it. Like, I thought that it was a very nice application of what you've been building uh, throughout, the, throughout the course of the book and how it plays out both in the play and in terms of whiskey. And I, 
I, I was kind of debating whether or not I would ask this question, but uh, dealing with Pirandello's six characters in search of an author, which is a play, and I, I've only seen the film of it that was that was made years ago, and I'd forgotten about it until I'd read it in here. But to kind of summarize it very briefly and add anything if I um, miss something because it's been so long, it's about six characters that kind of pop into existence on a film or, or play or um, theater set, and they're looking for their uh, their like who made them, like who who authored them, and it's interesting because this act of looking or seeking for uh, an author that kind of is a project of their own. But it's one, it's a project that doesn't kind of give them rectorship status, right? It's a project that only maintains their position as authors. Like the end goal is to right. remain an, remain, remain uh, an actor, not to become the author or the rector. Um, and I, was, I guess my question was, how does that play and that, that idea and also add stuff from it, if you want, figure into this you know, dynamic, this, maybe this discussion of modernity and how power um, acts itself out with all these actors looking for an author as kind of sovereign to give them meaning as was demonstrated, like you said, in the Whiskey Rebellion. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, what I guess what I would say is, um, you know, it's, well, it's, it's not just one character in search of an author, it's six. So it embodies in a kind of interesting way, several of the contradictions of modernity that I try to focus on in the book. Um, and, you know, so on the one hand, it's a kind of emergency that there's no sovereign rector to author the law, right? The law has to be made by this in, in, in the American Republic, you know, by this difficult process of politicking, et cetera. Um, and that is a kind of crisis. So just like the, just like the actors are in search of their author, they're sort of in crisis. Um, at the same time, of course, it's deeply liberating. Uh, um, and you can see in the very sort of, um, you know, and in this sense, in this sense, um, you know, uh, um, those authors, including Gordon Wood, but others who write about the radicalism of the American Revolution are, are, are to some extent correct that there is in the American Revolution embodied this very, very weird idea, right? Which is that, um, like, actually we're on our own and there's nothing descended from God that is going to point us to the right leader and um, delegation is a problem that we just have to figure out. And in particular, we have to have a republic that... <laughs> in which we're just going to admit there's just way too many rectors, <laughs> right? There's, a, right there's, si there's six characters, right? I mean, it would be different if there's one character in search of an author, but of course the problem is there's six characters. And so if one of them is going to be the author, that means that the, that, that, that one is going to have power over the other ones. So that's the, mo that's the modern problem, of course, right? Now, of course, as we've already discussed, when you have this modern problem, of there are too many rectors running around and every, um, uh, 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 um, you know, every white male head of household, including some who don't own property in Pennsylvania and other states with certain voting laws, suddenly has access to rectorship, that is, deciding who the leaders are and what the politics are. One of the things you can trace in American modernity is the intense, intense and violent focus on limiting the body of the people, because now you've distributed rectorship um, 
widely. So you get a very intense focus on who is in and who is out of the body of the people. Um, so this might be one way one would think about, for example, the ex extremely violent, highly vituperative, and duplicitous uh, um, war making of the American Republic against uh, um, various native tribes. Um, compared to the early modern period, which is also nasty, brutish, and short, but in which met, you know the Iroquois Empire makes a series of alliances with the British and the French, um, uh, and the early modern period is incredibly contentious and complex. And there's all these periods where, for example, a certain tribe will uh, swear sovereignty to the English king. And instead, in the American project, you get in, in, instead this really intense notion that on the one hand, every American citizen is in a band of brothers. So there are characters in search of an author, and they have to decide by the end of the play that they're going to author themselves. On the other hand, that band of brothers is, you know, vicious in it, let's say, in its restrictions of who is in and who is out. Um, and so then American politics, of course, becomes about expanding citizenship um, through, you know, uh, against the sort of brutal restrictions of citizenship to a very narrow set of people. But those brutal restrictions are partially based in this crisis of there's no longer a sovereign, the people are the sovereign, therefore, who are the people? Um, and I think that Pirandello is a nice play. And I, I mean, I've just always loved the European absurdist tradition because I think in the, you know, it, it spent so much time thinking about modernity. You know, there's this really kind of intense notion that this is both an amazing opportunity and a space of existential terror, not knowing who the author is. That, you know, and that, 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 that's where I'm coming from with Pirandello. And I try to use it to interpret you know, the weirdness of the Whiskey Rebellion and um, the strangeness of American politics um, uh, in, in the era of the early Republic. Um, because I think that these existential aspects um, underwrite politics in a way that we should be able to talk about. Yeah, that's that's great. That's great. Um, my God, I don't, I don't know what else because uh, you know I'm for those listening I came up with this number of questions that I feel like we covered each I guess in some capacity or other that makes it difficult to just pose one right off the bat sure um, well let's just, talk, let's just sort of talk a little bit I mean I, I think I, I'd be interested more in, in, in impressions and reactions to the book and sort of um you know, it's it's sort of relationship to to, to um, many of the things we've talked about today, but also other stuff you've covered in the in the podcast. I mean, I know um, I know you've done Benjamin, I know you've done Foucault and Colasso, et cetera. Um, so I'd be happy to talk a little bit more just about that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I think it dovetails pretty well with you know the the general theme in that w what I was have been trying to do is make you know theory and philosophy. Uh, relevant, at least, you know, making it accessible, but making it uh, so that we understand what the stakes are and why it's important. Um, and I certainly think that your uh, argument contributes to that. But the one that the argument that I like the best, or the one that maybe I don't like the best, but one that really speaks to me the most is uh, the discussion of enchantment. Uh, 
because I think that there is all too, um, and this goes back to what we were saying about Foucault, we are too quick to suggest that the world has just become demystified, that we've just entered this kind of, uh, you know, pure spectral light of scientific rationality and that there's no room then for like superstition or there's no room left for like um, any kind of, you know, imaginative uh, like creativity. And I'm just not satisfied with that. And part of my work is wondering if conspiracy theories can be, I guess, the potential of them can be harnessed almost as like, uh, you know, narrative tropes to, to motivate what I will just call now like kind of benevolent social movements uh, while foreclosing the negative ones, you know, the ones rife with anti-Semitism and stuff, which wouldn't be possible if we just went along this disenchantment route because conspiracy theories are, you know, they're unfalsifiable. They, they follow up, they, they don't use the proper scientific method or they use the, use a kind of bastardized one. So I'm just not totally interested in all that, like co- pure commitment to like atheism. Right. It's just one example. Um, even though I'm, you know, right. for my own part, I, I am personally, like, I don't, I try to stay away from superstition or like essential oils. It's just one right. chiropractors. Like I try to stay away from that but, stuff. So this is actually really useful and a wonderful place, um, you know, to, to, to kind of end this discussion because it'll also allow me to point to someone else's work who, who's, who I admire. I mean, so yeah, so enchantment, you know, and in, in, in the Weber disenchantment thesis, I mean, you go and look at, when he talks about it, I mean, clearly one of the meanings is the kind of demagification of the world, right? So people, uh, if they, if you live in a disenchanted world, people are less willing, Weber says, to to accept um, enchanted explanations, magical explanations of things that happen in the physical world. So, so you don't actually know how a streetcar works, but, but, but. When you get on the streetcar, you believe that someone else scientifically, materialistically knows how the streetcar works. That's why, you know, you think that the, that the elevator isn't going to crash or the subway, right? So, and, and, and that's his, so that's demagification. So, so, so the theorist, the German theorist Hans Joas has written this very interesting book called The Power of the Sacred. And one of his arguments in that book is that Weber's, Weber tended to see magic as the origin point of religion, which then gets built on top of it, various versions of the sacred and conceptions of man's place in the universe, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so then if you view it that way as magic as the core and then all the other religious stuff builds over the top of it, then, you know, modernity comes along and, and drills through not only religion and the sacred, but also then finally magic, and therefore you're sort of left in the disenchanted world. But Yoas says, if you flip this around and you take what he calls a more Durkheimian perspective, and he, he says, Yoas says, look, to have the notion that you can have magical power over something physical in the world requires already a presupposition of some kind of experience of the sacred. So we shouldn't, and so, and if you think of it that way, that actually human beings have experiences of the sacred, not all of them we would 
can call religious. I mean, you know, um, people experience the sacred in nature or in um, other moments in their life, in love and other things like that. So Yoa says, you know, if we start with the experience of the sacred and think that magic explanations themselves are sort of parasitic on this deeper sort of human question about what is the experience of the sacred with other human beings, with the collectivity, then we're in a very different position because then you could have a, you could have it be that in modern societies, people start in many zones of expertise, giving up on magical explanations, but that wouldn't mean that you had destroyed the experience of or need for the sacred. So then you could start talking about which magical explanation, you know, maybe you could say something like, well, there's certain kinds of magical explanations, which are just, you know, false. But underneath them is a yearning for the sacred, which could also we could also find in other, you know, in, in, in progressive social movements where there's a yearning for the sacred. There's a yearning, you know, in the U.S., people would say in progressive movements, you know, the progressive movement is for America to become the thing that it always claimed that falsely that it was. Right. They would say right that they would say that. Um, you know, and that's a kind of yearning for this, you know, the sacred idea of liberty and equality and, you know, et cetera, um, not actualized in the world, right? So, so I think if you go that route, you can kind of inter ent enter in an interesting place where, you know, enchantment is always around. But why is it always around? It's always around because the human experience of the sacred is always around. So then on that sense, you could say, okay, well, I want to critique certain enchantments as both false and pernicious. But I, but I want to recognize that the experience of the sacred is very hard to eliminate from collective human life and think about what that experience should be. Um, that might be a way to build towards something. I find I didn't discuss Yoas um, extensively in the book because his book was sort of coming out when I was sort of finishing mine. So, um, or just, you know, and, and, uh, but I, I think that's a compelling argument um, because it gets us somewhere with what is going on underneath these conspiracy theories, which are obviously silly and in some deep ways pernicious because they lead people to make bad decisions based on magical thinking. I mean, you know, uh, you know, the, so, you know, maybe the, the classic example would be the guy who showed up at the pizza restaurant, you know, with an, a, with an, with an AR-15 rifle. Um, obviously, we want less of that kind of enchantment. But, of course, the question of reaching for the sacred seems much harder to eliminate from human life, and we ought to be thinking carefully about that. Yeah, absolutely. And even if we think about it in terms of, like, science, for example, or let's say mathematics – where um, I just read this book recently about it. Uh, it's like it was called "Great Ideas of Modern Mathematics," and in it, the author makes the case that like mathematics only works if you assume um, an ideal world, right? So, if for example you wanted to do like hydrodynamics and discover or locate like the kind of um, the force of a, a moving river, for example, you can't really do that in the world with just like math per se, because as soon as you account for like the viscosity of the water, the presence of fish, the rocks underneath the water, the kind of like corrosion that's affected the sides of the river, you have a very unideal mm -hmm. kind of um, possibility, right? So math can only take you so far. The rest is like up to 
to some extent, faith. Like you need to just kind of, if you're going to create a dam, for instance, you're just like, this might work. Uh, so that maintains in error of pragmatics, right? You're saying, yes, the rest is up to pragmatics. Yeah. And e- but even if, let's say you took this kind of pure empirical route and you're like, okay, pure trial and error, we're going to figure this out. Um, that implies like a need for the unknown to some extent. Like you, you know that this can't be explained. You know that there are things beyond as, as humans that we can't like simply grasp. And I guess you could see the Kantian implications there. Like what is that thing beyond the, the phenomenon? But let's say for instance, in the kind of rationalist scheme, imagine someone saying, oh yeah, with mathematics, like the Stephen Hawking thing, like we can find this God molecule. Like we can explain everything with the right, like analytic uh, rigor, the right analytic tools. And both of which seem to leave room, albeit a little bit of room for this thing that is beyond what we know to be, you know, pure rational uh, speculation or like there, there's always going to be room for that. So when someone you know, proposes what would appear to be an outlandish explanation for something like a conspiracy theory. It just seems wrong to outright be like, no, stupid, get rid of it. Um, Although it, you know, we have to be critical of it. Um, It doesn't seem as though this can just, we can just conjure away conspiracy theories, you know, under the aegis of a kind of disenchantment project. And Baudrillard has this one line in one of his books where he says, I fear not terrorism as much as I fear a state capable of getting rid of terrorism, which I think that there are these certainly these efforts and these kind of Foucauldian uh, experts, so to speak, who want to do that, who are trying to get rid of these any and all um, explanations of the world that don't subscribe to a kind of almost baseline materialist explanation of things um, that is just, to me, kind of boring and it you know it takes its cues from uh in part from like marxism you know when we think of scientific uh socialism or something that just tries to explain away all culture all identity as just being the product of certain material forces and with you know the right tools we can uncover these forces and then we can find the root of all things in the material world, not in the divine, not, not in enchantment, not in the superstitious, but in just what is immediately present to us. But, and like my Kantian side is like, well, this connection to this phenomenal world is pretty like tenuous. It's not a great connection. And we don't even know what constitutes that world. Like from where does it, where does it come? Is it out there? Is it produced via our experiences? Why do I have a different experience of the world than y- you might or anyone else? Like, why do I taste things differently if there was, you know, a pure objectivity to the world? It seems as though there's always going to be room and it might just be part of this human condition for, you know, ascribing meaning to something outside of, you know, our being human, our being material, and, and so on. So it seems like conspiracy theories, like you said, we we might not be able to do away with them. Uh, maybe we maybe we should try. Who knows? They have been pretty dangerous. But might there be a way to use them for good if we can't get away with them or do away with them? That was my my rant. Yeah, I think you're, that's really nice. I mean, I think you're pointing towards the way. What I would say is that you're pointing towards the way in which you know. Um, a critical theory that embodies the goals of um, 
human reason and enlightenment always has to also be historical and hermeneutic. Um, and hermeneutic in particular, in the sense that it has to recognize the making of meaning as a um, ineradicable human activity. And so one has to kind of, of course be critical of some meanings as exclusionary and um, or destructive even, but it's very hard um, to kind of construct the kinds of critical theory that we want without having a kind of hermeneutic dimension where we really attend to other people's meanings, whatever they are, and figure out and, and, and try to kind of figure out how they work. Um, I mean, I would just call that the sort of hermeneutic basis for the human sciences, um, which includes experiences of the sacred and maybe another way to phrase that would be the con consistent making of meaning and significance um, that attends human life. Um, and, and, and so, I mean, I think that, you know, what you're pointing to is that it's difficult to try to build, um, you know, a, a kind of, uh, a, a critical theory that doesn't have some recognition of sort of the existential dilemma of being human, um, sort of built into it. Um, and that's easy inside the modern episteme to kind of get a, you know, kind of lose sight of that, um, inside the spaces of various, um, theories of historical necessity or, or social process or iron laws of oligarchy or whatever. Um, you know, the, the meaning dimension cannot be eliminated um, if one is going to build a theory that is both, um, you know, analytically precise and also sort of norm, normatively ambitious. Yeah, I, I think so. Like, I agree. Um, <laughs> certainly. <laughs> Yes, maybe maybe we should leave it there. I felt I felt my most coherent in the in the in the, in the, in the last comment. Uh, I'm good at that. That was a it was a good way to round it out. Um, all right, great. Well, for anyone that listened this far, I'm going to grab um, a, you know after this, I'll grab a bunch of links from you, Isaac, for anything you want to include to you know publications or anything. But for anyone that listened this far, thanks a lot. Um, I couldn't have done this without. Isaac, of course. Thank you so much because, for having me. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this discussion. Thank you for writing the book. And uh, I don't know, we might do this again in the future if you. Yes. Well, I'm sure we can discuss a book that's not that's not my own. And this is this was really this was really fun. So thanks so much for having me. I really do appreciate it. No, no problem. Thanks for explaining this to me. <laughs> it was great fun. It was great All right. Fun. Thanks a lot, Isaac. And uh, yeah, for those that listen, thanks a lot. And tune in next time. <laughs>